0: everyone and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett and today we're joined by Belinda Neal. She is an international keynote speaker and author and she was a former New South Wales police inspector. She had an 18-year career and she did undercover operations, major crime and homicide investigations and police hostage negotiations uh, Interestingly, she was uh, one of the five hostage negotiation team leaders during the Sydney 2000 Olympics. And then in 2005, she retired um, basically due to post-traumatic stress disorder. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. And then she went on to write a best-selling book called Under Siege, which is a wonderful book. Highly recommend everyone read it. It tells her personal story, but also some great tools and strategies about how to overcome PTSD. And today, uh, she's a passionate advocate to help people understand the importance of prevention and early intervention. And that's something we rarely talk about, do we? We always wait till people have had something traumatic happen that, that is equivalent of someone having five heart attacks. So I'm so grateful that she has given up her time today to come on the podcast and share all of her learnings Thank you so much Belinda for being with us today. We're so excited to have you here and look forward to hearing about your story. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Oh, look, thank you so much Celine. I'm very excited to be here because it's an area I'm very passionate about. So, a little bit about my story, I was a police officer as you said for 18 years. Um I had an amazing career in areas like undercover work, um, being a police hostage negotiator and homicide experience in homicide. But what I didn't realise that through all those different areas, I was exposed to a number of, of traumatic incidents. Um, some examples are I, during a, host, a hostage situation, we were actually watching a woman being stabbed uh, and, and we could only talk at that stage. Um, in one another situation, during a barricade situation, I was talking to a man who had a carving knife He got to within 30 seconds, within about 30 centimetres of me before he um, was arrested by the tactical police. I went to a number of horrific crime scenes when I was in the homicide um, squad, um, horrific murders of women and children, and what I didn't realise that um, it wasn't until I had my own children... That I started to get really horrendous, intrusive thoughts about my children being stabbed or murdered in their beds. Um, A number of really horrific incidents. Effectively, in a nutshell, I succumbed to post-traumatic stress disorder. My marriage broke down. To give an example of how my skill levels fell, like I was, look, when I medically retired, I was an inspector of police. And I loved putting my mind to managing really difficult situations, major crime scenes and other volatile and emergency situations. I thrived under under pressure. I loved a challenge, but it got to a point where I couldn't even leave my house. I couldn't even volunteer to go and do tuck shop duties at my kids' primary school because I couldn't handle the stress of taking money and organising finances of small children. So there's the difference between working at a high level but then being reduced to this simply because of um, the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I medically retired, um, went through a huge amount of therapy at that stage. I did get worse when I retired. And I guess something um, which your listeners might, might be interested in is sometimes work keeps us busy. And that's fine, but when I left work, and I remember actually saying to my husband at the time, "I see dead people, like the movie um, with Bruce Bruce Willis." And it's not like I'm not a clairvoyant, I'm not a medium, I'm nothing like that. But it was the only way to describe the the images and the videos of of dead bodies and intrusive the intrusive thoughts that was going through my mind. It got to a point that. I actually found myself wanting to end my life. And I think with this busyness, because I wasn't busy anymore, I was having all these images. But also I think when you're busy, you're also avoiding. You're not actually getting the help. So I got to the point where I wanted to end my life. I came very close. Um, I was literally negotiating with myself on the top of a cliff. Um, I negotiated myself out of that situation and came back and spoke to my psychiatrist, and the one thing he did say was, you finally accepted, you have a problem. Because at that stage, I was having psychotherapy two or three times a week, but I refused to take antidepressant medication because being a hostage negotiator, I felt that if I had to take antidepressant medication, that would make me one of the people that I used to talk to. And I was at that stage, but I didn't believe it. Mm -hmm. And so it was a big struggle within myself about actually, well, the fact that I had a problem. Once you actually accept you have a problem, that's when you can start receiving the right treatment and you really take it on board. And I did some wonderful therapies with my psychiatrist at that point. um, And, I still continue today. I'm very big on researching therapies because I love empowering people. I love being able to give people skills because it's not just about psychotherapy and cognitive behavior therapies, which are two main things which you should be doing anyway. But there's a lot of other things that you can do to help manage yourself.
0: So uh, thank you for sharing that story. That's not an easy story to share, but I know that you're trying to help other people now so they don't have to go through the same Experiences. And I think from a neuroscience perspective, I think the thing that's missing out there in the conversations for people that are first responders and in general in society is our lack of understanding to teach people that we're not superhumans in terms of unless we do put in place tons of interventions and prevention strategies, we're still humans looking after humans, no matter if you're a police Mm. person or a paramedic or a doctor or a psychiatrist or the list goes on and on we the brain the brain without protection processes everything that you're doing beyond your subconscious understanding i think that's what you're saying is that you had no concept that your job could do that to you you subconsciously
1: oh look that that's exactly that is exactly right um it's really interesting. There's a professor, I'm not sure if you've spoken to him, a professor Alexander McFarlane down in South Australia. And he made a comment about how trauma, that each time we we have a trauma exposure, our brain does retain that. So it's, it, these are some of the things that I would have loved to have known a lot earlier and put in place certain tools now I could have used back then to help prevent and minimise how badly the symptoms affected me
0: but i think the thing is belinda you no one does this still um so you're not alone you're trying to change these conversations like we all are but and it's not just people doing extreme like you're on the extreme end and some veterans etc there's there's, less, there's a big spectrum here isn't there of what people are exposed to but even just everyday people aren't aware that the brain takes in traumatic, stressful things all the time, even though we think we're ignoring them or avoiding them, the brain takes them in at a 10x rate over good things.
1: Ah, yes. Look, absolutely. I mean, you you think about everyday people, car accidents. They're, they're one of the main things um, in terms of PTSD, people getting symptoms of PTSD. But it's not necessarily just PTSD. It's anxiety. It's depression. It's a host of different things the tools that we can use for PTSD can be helpful with all different other mental health issues.
0: Yeah, and I see them as not mental health issues, but the brain keeping the score. (laughs) Um, Oh, absolutely. You know, I I think we always like to label things and the labeling Mm -hmm. then leads you to in that situation where you don't want to be someone else because we've labeled that person as bad, but they're not bad. They're just like all of us, we're all the same. Experiencing life, trying to get on with it, you know, mm. and this is the thing that's holding people back from admitting that we all need to be training our brain too, right? That's an interesting concept that you mm. had there.
1: Oh, a- a- absolutely. And we can train our brain. And that's something that I found through some research that I did um, back in 2015 a- a- as a result of something my psychiatrist put me through some cerebellum exercises. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you went on to write, um, and thank you for doing that, a book called Under Siege, and it's a, it's a remarkable book, and you talk about your excitement of becoming a young police officer and yes. graduating, and then you describe uh, very vividly, like within the first few weeks, serious things happening on the job that you really weren't prepared for, were you?
1: Oh, the brain was definitely not prepared for that. Um, you know, one of one of the first things that was within, I think, six months. I was still a probationary constable. And in the I, I was working at Waverley. Um, one of the other probationary constables who I went through the academy with was working at Paddington. And we were both on night work and we were involved in a a chase, a car chase. And he was one of he was the lead car. We were not far behind it. Anyhow, he had an accident, and I remember going to the scene and seeing him in the car, and the car had been wrapped around a pole. Well, he died from his head injuries eight, I think it was eight days later, eight, nine days later. But as a young probationary constable, that's all exciting and that's all, but it was horrendous, the impact of that initial excitement and being six foot tall and bulletproof versus seeing something so traumatic to someone that you know as well really had a massive impact but I didn't think much of it and I debriefed with alcohol and alcohol became my crutch for a good couple of years um it wasn't until later I realized that was self-medicating
0: yeah absolutely um and the thing about under siege is not just about describing all these experiences but what was the moment um that caused the complete change in your life where you were able to overcome it because that's what this podcast is all about is helping people see that you're not stuck with this forever necessarily if you get the right help and around you so do you want to describe that moment when all of a sudden things start to clear again and you could see a way forward
1: it was probably two moments selena um the first moment was when i had finally accepted the problem And that was after I got to a point where I, it was, the the struggle was just getting too big. And I finally accepted that um, I had a problem. And when I accepted the problem, that's when I could um, start to work on it. The thing that really changed my life, um, my psychiatrist uh, was, was some cerebellum exercises. And I was trying a number of things. I was doing physical exercise. I was trying yoga but what I found and and I and I'd like to comment about things like yoga and mindfulness as well because they are wonderful but at the time because of the intrusive thoughts were so bad I was still um disassociating so I didn't want to focus on one one thing my psychiatrist was telling me to do was just to sit quietly for 10 minutes not do anything and just see what came up well I remember um after what seemed like an age i checked my watch and it had been one minute it was like i almost couldn't handle that so the next big actual moment was when my psychiatrist gave me these cerebellum exercises to do and i think um you touched on it earlier Into the cerebellum itself we always used to think of it being um for balance Whereas there's been a lot of research and you would be more up to date than myself in, in terms of the research with the cerebellum. But there was some, a lot of research back um, around 2008 about the, the cerebellum being doing more than that in terms of cognitive situation. Anyhow, he did a study of 14 patients, simple exercise, five minutes, twice a day, standing on one leg. I did this. With with, your eyes closed. With my eyes closed, of course. Thank you very much for that. I did this for three weeks. I started to feel happy again. I had my first social event um, in years with some girlfriends. And because I wasn't going outside, I didn't like it. I became very anxious. I was able to be weaned off the antidepressant medication. Um, My memory started to get better. And a lot of the symptoms, but what it one of the main things that allowed me to do was when I was undergoing psychotherapy with um, my psychiatrist, I wasn't dissociating as much as what I had been previously. I was able to start recalling things, talking about them, and working through them. So Amazing. that was a massive, massive change for me.
0: Amazing. Let's talk about this a little bit. Um, so I have met your met this psychiatrist and he's been doing work with hundreds of police officers over a long period of time now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the interesting piece of information that I learned that I wasn't quite so on top of was that everyone goes in and relays their story like a film with a beginning, a middle and an end. And he timed these stories And people would cry at exactly the same point in their story and get angry at the same point in their story. So what he came to learn was there was no time stamping on the memories. So meaning that, and it seems now that more research is being done on the cerebellum because we used to ignore the cerebellum (laughs) uh, Mm. for a really long period of time in uh, neuroscience, but it seems like the cerebellum is holding very traumatic emotional memories without time stamps. Meaning that you're yes. having these what you call intrusive thoughts or memories, but they have, to you they feel like they're happening right now. They could well, they, have
1: happened 15 years ago, for example. They're contemporary, and and this is a big thing which I find it just horrible for those who have PTSD and traumatic memories. When someone says, "Why can't you just let it go?" What? what if? Because that's not how it is, and, and it's the timestamp that you're talking about. and it feels to the person is having the intrusive thought is like it is happening right then and it could have been 10 years ago it could have been when they were in Afghanistan it could have been the car accident they were in but it's happening to them right then and I think getting past that time stamp with these cerebellum exercises it is a major breakthrough
0: It's it's incredible isn't it um, so I've been reading all the papers in this field now and uh just fascinating. So his hypothesis, uh, I can say Greg, Greg's hypothesis, um, yes. is that, and I can understand this cause I've been trying these exercises myself and I'm not really good at them either, yet. but that's a, but that's a good thing. <laughs> it is. I know. Cause if you're good at it, then you're not changing your pathways. Um, so yes. he describes, um, and obviously lots more research needs to happen now that, you know, breakthroughs happen through serendipitous findings that lead to more people taking it up. And in the beginning, people shut it down, but then eventually there's too much empirical evidence that people start to research it. So I think that's going to happen now. Definitely a lot of work happening in the cerebellum and emotional memory. So he described standing on one leg um, with your eyes closed as potentially generating BDNF, which is this growth factor that is essential for forming new synapses or new pathways in the brain. And so he wants people not to become really good at balancing on one leg, but to actually get the pathway started that allows you to do what you just described in that session.
1: And that's really interesting, too, because when because when Greg had such an amazing result from his 14 patients, the study that he did, I then did another study in 2015. but what was interesting was not just the study but the the research behind it there was some research done in 2004 and 2008 researchers did a um, it was study on juggling balls and mm. they looked at the brain and it was about neuroplasticity and they could show there were actual changes or growth in gray matter and that went against everything that or, or, anything ever thought because everyone thought you couldn't change the brain there would be no more growth it would only change with aging or um, issues tumors etc so now researchers showed that there is a change in gray matter but even more interesting in 2008 where you just hit the nail on the head they're saying that it is um, it is about learning a new activity once you learn that activity the change stops or the neuroplasticity, the synapses stop, you need to then learn something else. And that's why with the cerebellum exercises, what Greg gave us, once we had, were able to complete that first exercise, which you're trying, you know, the standing on one leg, eyes closed, five minutes twice a day, then we would do another one. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, and especially for your listeners, it took me about three weeks before I could do that. And in my study, it took people, some people up to six weeks before they could actually do that. Yeah. So, if you're wobbling and you can't balance properly, that's great. That means it's the exercise for you until you can do it. Linda, um,
0: fabulous work that you've done. And I can see how amazingly hard it would have been when you were told to stand on one leg, close your eyes, and let's see if that can help you. Let's, let's talk about that um, aha moment or the step through for you personally, trying to make like how resistant were you to doing that and how hard was it to actually do?
1: I was at that point where I would try anything to get off the antidepressants. Quite simply, that's what it boiled down to. I'm very stubborn. I'm a fighter. I'm very strong, which is always not a good thing. wasn't a good thing in this because all I did was try and fight the treatment. But it got to a stage where I had finally realized I had to do something. So I was happy to try anything. So if it was going to potentially um, get me off the medication and reduce my symptoms. Well, that's what we were hoping. So it was odd. Um, Five minutes remembering to do it twice a day. It it did feel unusual because it was so difficult. It it was quite difficult to do. Um, But Greg was very good in terms of um, how to do it and questions I had so it was good having that uh, mentoring along the way but when I started to see the results that also gave me momentum how many days
0: in were you do you think to start to feel a little bit different
1: oh uh, I think about a week in a week in, a week sorry a week in I started to notice some changes
0: what were I'd- they do you remember Bonnie two
1: I was feeling calmer I was feeling less irritable around my children, which to me was just everything, uh, because that was the thing that I think still affects me the most in terms of those aspects of PTSD. My sleep was getting better. That was a that was a huge one, um, because I'm a very big believer in in the in ha- good sleep is going to help the body in so many ways and you, you would be able to elaborate on that I'm sure in, in terms of how it is mm-hmm. good for the brain but yeah so sleep my irritability so I was starting to feel calmer and I was starting to be able to talk or I, I found the psychotherapy easier is saying it's easy is probably simplifying it too much but I found psychotherapy um, was not as difficult As what it had been. It didn't take it out of me like it used to. So before it was exhausting. Would you
0: describe before that it was more like you're reliving because you have no time stamp on those memories, then basically you're bringing them up, but then there's they're really, really real for you again.
1: Look, absolutely. And when you're reliving something so traumatic, it is exhausting and it takes all of your energy.
0: Yeah.
1: So the process of that psychotherapy and and going through those traumatic experiences became less traumatic it was less like it was reliving and it was starting to become starting to become a history so you're getting a time stamp somehow
0: the, the somehow you're managing to get time stamps and a reprocessing of where it's going in the brain which is so interesting
1: I was really impressed with how there was this big change in me with the cerebellum exercises. I read um, the results of Greg's study in 2005 and 14, like 100% of um, people in his study all reduced their PTSD symptoms and that was through the PCLC um, measure. The the thing that um, I need to be very, very clear about is I do not for one minute suggest that these exercises should be done in place of CBT, trauma-focused CBT, EMDR at all. They are only an adjunct. They're like a number of other tools that we can use, but I found them as one of the main things that I guess changed Um, My life. Yeah.
0: And everyone's going to be so different too. Because if, of course, if if someone Hmm. can already balance on one leg um, really easily, then that's not going to work for them. This is what we're talking about. And he talks about this a lot too. It's Hmm. about adjusting things to get the brain focusing and doing something completely new. I mean, you talk a lot about work keeping you really busy, but also what work is doing, it's keeping the brain focused on something else. Yes. And so when you're not doing, which is, yeah, good and bad mm. but you know we have to also relieve the underlying causes don't we to move things forward and I think the interesting work that will probably evolve out of this is that time stamping of emotional memories mm. um, and and these aren't just any memories these are ones that get highly contextualized and inputted somewhere because of their heaviness to the brain
1: mm it would be wonderful the best outcome for me in relation to this would be perhaps a PhD student or someone like that took up the research and just to see where it went yeah but this is free this will not cost your listeners anything to do this exercise I know five five minutes of their time twice a day if they can already balance if they're a ballet dancer or something like that there are other exercises to do so that's the beauty of the exercise
0: thing is um in summary is that uh together and he's now looked after four or five hundred more police officers he's Mm -hmm. he's uh, described these traumatic uh events that happen to people in different ways getting time stamped in a way that is almost identical between people different stories but the same kind of film taking place which is really fascinating and then with these exercises combined with other things, because everything, as you said, is not one solution, it's just tools in a kit, yes. you start to see that the timestamps on those films that people would describe of their events start to shift as well.
1: Mm. Look, absolutely. I think um, when, when you look at what the goals of therapy are, It's about providing a better quality of life. So if somebody can do an exercise which allows them to undergo that process of psychotherapy or trauma-focused CBT, then why not try it?
0: Absolutely. I also think this goes down to, and I have many conversations outside, you know, frontline work that you're describing, which is quite one. And we also have children that are born to a lot of this between the ages of zero and 18. Um, and I know a lot of these people get factored out when they join first line responding um, things but we do have multi-generational families impacted by a lot of adversity Hmm. and they describe this same sequence that you just described where they get told can't you just get over that fact that happened when you're eight Hmm. and now they're 28 and they're trying to make a change too to help other people but they get told by everyone can't you just let it go now and i think it it's just so reminiscent of what you just said to me as yeah. well and so it yes. feels like these exercises could be really valuable for helping implement some changes around adverse childhood experiences and how they impact people later in life
1: absolutely uh, absolutely again really it's a really simple thing to do it is free it is probably the most significant change in my recovery. And then w- once I think you can get over, but once you can get through that, there's, a, there's also a number of other tools to use. But I found that probably to be my most significant in all the tools that I've used.
0: It changes your belief system too about the whole thing, doesn't it? It changes your ability to see that you can make a change physically that's not about who you are and your identity and that you're not strong enough and yeah those beliefs we build up about ourselves it, it starts to shift that belief doesn't it
1: it really does but I found it very empowering because you're actually you're able to take charge of yourself and, and this is like the like it, it we've all got a toolbox And in that toolbox, we have a number of things that we can use to help our mental health. Well, all of those are empowering. This is one of those tools that in your toolbox. And when you have that, when you feel empowered, you can actually start taking charge of yourself. And you, because one of the biggest things I found that when I was um, in a really bad state is I felt there was no way out. There was nothing I could do. I was only relying on this and this. But when you finally have a few tools and sometimes you are doing things which you don't realize are tools it's very very empowering to somebody
0: yeah I And mean, how are you now like how long is it since
1: you started doing those exercises and well 2005 i have been in basically researching a number of different um tools since 2005 Uh, Since Well, it's one of the reasons I decided to write the book in the first place because my book was published in 2014. So I had had numerous years of therapy by that stage and I had learned a number of things. And I kept seeing really good police, really good first responders succumbing to PTSD, wanting to ending their lives. And I just felt that I wanted to impart this because nobody was talking about it. Nobody was really helping so it's one of the reasons i wrote the book for those who were were affected by ptsd but also their families and carers and friends because some of the cheapest form of support for someone with ptsd is the people they surround themselves with or their families so and secondly one of the i guess in terms of my family i was the person that my family used to come to if there was an issue but when I was unwell, they didn't know what to do. So I got little to no support from my family. And that is no, um, I have no issue in relation to that because they just didn't know. Yeah. And so my book was also about educating families and friends about what they can do for their loved one.
0: Thank you so much. I think that that uh, who you're surrounding yourself with and them understanding what to do. We always feel helpless sometimes when someone's different to how we're used to seeing them. Mm. And it can kind of be a bit frightening in a way when rather than leaning out, having tools to help people lean into it. So, I yes. did an amazing podcast with uh, Judy Cornish, who's developed some really interesting, cool tools to help carers with people looking after people with dementia. Oh, wonderful. And changing people's understanding about how to help them see that people are mindlessness, meaning that they're actually living in the moment mm. and you can join them in those moments of happiness. Rather than, then rather than trying to get them to recall stuff or get irritable or upset that they're not the same as they used to be in a way. So oh. um, all these tools are really helpful for people and and using podcasts and books and platforms. Yes. Educate. Education. and Because it's the lack of awareness, isn't it, first? And all of us are in this situation oh. in different ways. I just see it as a spectrum. And sometimes yes. childhood memories for people, can feel like it's now when it was like 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. for example. And like some events can happen, like your loved one getting really ill and not being who they are anymore can make you go back and relive these really big events that happen when you're really young. So what you're, what you're saying to me reminds me a lot of that too.
1: Actually, that's a really interesting point. I used to talk to people and give them this um, scenario if you walked into a room with a bandage wrapped around your head, what would people say? Are you okay? Is there something I could do? What happened to you? Etc. If you have a physical injury, people know what to do. Um, if suddenly one of your members of your family became ill with a physical illness, you would go and find out about it, speak to the doctor about it. Well, mental health is no different. The issues with the brain is absolutely no different. So it's worse in many ways. <laughs> and that's one of the things that made me worse because people would avoid me. They didn't know what to say. It actually makes a person in that position feel worse. I think so, um,
0: so, so what, what what are the couple of things for people listening that are in this situation trying to help people right now? Can you give them a maybe one or two little pointers of how they can lean in? What are what are some of the strategies that you've taught in your book or helping others do to lean into this situation that's quite stressful?
1: Absolutely. First of all, educate yourself. Um, jump on Dr. Google and find out, you know, about PTSD or if it's depression or if it's anxiety. That will give you a bit of an idea of what it's about. Sit down. Are you okay? Get ready for the person to say, "No, I'm not okay." What is it? Can I do for you? Can I make a cup of tea? Check in on them. Suggest, you know, you might take them for a walk. But it's just sometimes it's being there or it's being an understanding, it's just making them a cup of tea. Um, you can support them in that sense. Um, can I just
0: interrupt for one second, Belinda? Yep. In this moment, people are afraid to ask people, are you okay? And especially someone like yourself that was an inspector and comes as crosses on top of everything, can handle everything. People are then And I've got many situations myself that I face in this way, even my own mother or someone like that. It's very, that moment of asking is very difficult because you don't want, you're afraid that they think that they're, that you think they're less. And that's a very hard, is there some way to step through leaning through that process in a way that's not hurtful to the person that you're asking that of, if you know what I mean? Like how would how would you feel when someone first said that to you when you still felt like nothing was truly wrong, but everyone else around you could see something was wrong?
1: To be honest, uh, I would have it would have probably taken take I would have probably taken a step back, but it would have allowed me to think about what I was doing.
0: If it's the right was, person, right? It had someone you really it, trust.
1: And it has to be the right person
0: that has your best interest at heart, and you absolutely know that it's, it's not can't be just anybody, can it?
1: Okay, it could be someone could be someone in your workplace. Um, it could be a family member, or it could be a friend. But it might be a situation where you say, "Look, I've noticed this, this, and this. You know, I've noticed um, you seem really tired, or you haven't seen yourself lately. Is everything all right?" It's about starting the conversation, but sometimes it's good to preface with that, and it's also be very mindful about where this conversation is going to take place. So if you're at a family function with everybody around, don't say it. That's not the right time to say it. You might just say, look, I'd love to catch up with you for a coffee over the next couple of days, or let me know when I can come and visit. But someone in the workplace, you're not going to have that conversation when they're at their work desk can I take you down the road for coffee or wait until the person when there is nobody in the workplace and you can have that conversation. If it's a friend, you know, it might be taking them to a place where they feel safe, but there's nobody around. And then this is what I've noticed. I care about you. I love you. Obviously that's not a work thing. care about you. I love you. Or this is what I've noticed at work. You know, you've been late. there has been all these unexplained absences. I just want to check, is everything all right? What's, can we talk about that? So it's a it's a delicate conversation for sure, and I think one of the biggest things in terms of the we we have are you okay day, it's about teaching people who are asking the question are you okay, how to respond to the answer no I'm not okay yes
0: and that is big
1: and that that is big, and my recommendation is it's listening. The person wants you to listen to them. So just listen, no judgment. So don't be judgmental. You're not okay? Tell me what's been going on, what's happening, and just listen and let the person talk. And if you are being non-judgmental, the person will talk more. Show empathy. That must be very difficult. That would be really hard. Never say, I understand, because you haven't been in that exact position. But just I imagine that would be really stressful. I can see that you're very upset. Are you okay?
0: And then, and then listen, and then wait till they ask for what do you think I could do, or
1: how can we do something? And and even if you say, look, how can we do something together? Did you want me to take you know come with you to the doctor? Do you think maybe you should speak to your GP about it? You know, maybe your GP could recommend. And that's the first point of call is the GP. Okay, that's really really important. I'm happy to come with you to the GP. Have you spoken to your doctor about this? I've actually done some research on anxiety and there's some really good methods. So why don't, why don't you go to your GP and we'll talk about that. There are so many different ways that it's starting that conversation. And I think that's a really big fear for people is starting that conversation okay. because yeah. they feel, so. yeah, they don't know what to say. But it's just listen. It's It's more about listening, showing empathy and being non-judgmental.
0: And then, of course, uh, there's so much wonderful things once that's sorted out in a safe environment, make the people feel safe. Just that feeling that someone's there for you is a massive foundational drive to change and help and
1: driving. Look, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Um, And it's really interesting. um, The organisation, I'm an ambassador for, um, Australian Kookaburra, Kookaburra Kids Foundation, they just had a white paper come out on connection and that that's all, you know, connection and connection for mental health. It's just an amazing paper.
0: Yeah. I think that's, it's a very, just from my own experience with my sister, it's a very isolating, you lose a lot of friends. My sister wasn't, hers was on an even more extreme level, but it the way her she was treated was very traumatic um, in itself. Oh, oh, yes. So, okay. but yeah, so then you lose a lot of your friends and you get isolated and which then makes it worse. <laughs> so there's so many things yeah. here, but yeah, that's a great suggestion for people listening. Um, how do you follow on from, it's not enough to just say, are you okay? Is it because that's then you're making wrong. a judgment necessary. I mean, I think it's a great step that we're making all these mm. changes to have open the conversation up, but we have to be able to then follow through when we mm. get the When we don't get the answer, I'm fine.
1: (laughs) And and I think too, we've got to remember it's actually okay not to be okay. Because if you know you're not okay, there's things that you can do about it. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's really important.
0: And do you want to let's talk about some of your light for everybody? Let's talk about all the wonderful things that have happened through your healing recovery journey
1: for everyone. Well, I have, um, I have actually learnt a number of things. I do a number of um, presentations now, but I love empowering people. I was approached by Fearless. I'm now on the board of Fearless PTSD Australia, New Zealand, um, and they're very empowering. That's for anybody with PTSD, You know, whether it's anything, you know, war vets, first responders, domestic violence, victims, car accidents, anyone with PTSD. Um, so we provide information. We do webinars. We have... Um, national conversations, and and it's about um, letting people know what it's all about. It's about empowering people. Again, I love, I love, love, love what um, Australian Kookaburra Kids Foundation are doing because what this organisation is about is if there is a parent, one or two parents with a mental illness, then what um, Australian Kookaburra Kids Foundation do is they empower the kids. So kids between the ages of eight, eight and 18, they take them on camps. They have, um, they have a lot of connection days through Zoom situations or fun days out. But on these fun camps and whatnot, they're actually teaching them about mental health and empowering them, giving them tools, you know, what mental health is all about, what they can do for themselves. And I think if we can empower kids between the ages of eight, eight and 18, that is absolutely wonderful. But for me, I've just, I look, I have a number of tools which I use for myself. I use the cerebellum exercises. I've discovered breath work, which is amazing, you know, from, through the likes of Wim Hof. I um, yeah.
0: uh, uh, talk about him a lot on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's amazing. Well, that's what started me off. But um, I now follow Sam Brown of Soulful mm-hmm. Lifestyle. She does some amazing breath work. To me, that's pretty well changed my life. Mm-hmm uh i was i i recall i did a um, a retreat a health retreat in october and this is where i learned breath work which which was amazing and it, what they talk about is that trauma is being stored in the body and the breath work bringing it out but i also like the fact that it oxygenates the blood
0: well that's what it really does yeah and changes that's exactly
1: right it changes the brain that's exactly right well i got through a christmas I'm part of a blended family now with five kids and I had a broken toe and breathe through deals. The Navy SEALs do a box breathing. So, yeah. you know, sometimes people don't want to do this sort of breath work but they might do what Wim Hof does or they might want to try the box breathing which yeah. was actually taught to me by Roy Darkins. Who's so imagine
0: doctor. telling people that breath work through the physiology of breathing in expanding your lungs as actually changing your amygdala and deactivating the stress networks instead of trying to make out it's some major thing that you've got to you know it's a really simple technique like going to the gym and doing a few reps on your arm. Imagine us teaching society that training the brain through the next sets of evolution, because suffering Mm. is part of evolution. All of us are suffering because of life and surviving evolution is not easy. Mm. So, you know, we always have to do something extreme to think that that's only for people that have an extreme issue, but we're all having to age and live through life. So these techniques you're describing are for everybody.
1: and they're free (laughs) this is what i love about them the pets are fabulous for healing um other you know but the mindfulness there's so many mindfulness apps available there's so many sleep apps available and and a lot of those are free as well and this is what i love about it getting out in nature is another one watching what you eat you know getting rid of sugar but just I, i think also remembering if your body is under stress why stress it out with sugar and alcohol and caffeine cigarettes even well people don't know
0: that addiction is medication for stress it's the same thing you know how you talk about going to work to avoid well that's the other avoiding tools that you use because one people not even aware that they're stressed Uh, they're really not because they're so tough and uh all sorts of things so yeah that's what we want to change is this conversation that stress is the number one thing that's preventing people from thriving and these yes. tools you're alluding to are the tools that help you see that your belief about certain things may be not quite right just because you inherited those beliefs from previous generations as well
1: yes and and you would be able to give the science behind physical exercise for mental yeah, health absolutely yeah yeah. Just going for a walk, going for a run. I love Especially surfing. Especially in
0: nature, yeah. Oh, surfing is another really huge one because it's immersed in ocean, which is really immersed in nature big time. And yes. this is the thing you talk about, the cerebellar exercises, and Greg was talking about BDNF. Well, this is the same that work of uh, Tara Walker at uh, QBI on my podcast has shown that she's identified some of the hormonal changes from physical exercise coming from the blood into the hippocampus, which is the memory centers of the brain, to actually stimulate new brain cell development. She's actually identified Mm. the pathway of that. So physical exercise is one of the big ones that really is fundamental to neuroplasticity. But yeah. you can't necessarily want run when you can't leave the house or you can't get out of bed because you're in the fetal position. And, you know, these extreme forms yes. of what you're describing, it has to be something much simpler first. Simpler. And that's what you were saying. Yoga is not even good enough because it, your brain's too overstimulated already from all of the traumatic yeah. memories that are just present all the time, basically. Yes.
1: So, At, yeah. And, again, that's why the cerebellum, cerebellar exercises are uh, so helpful. Because yeah, because you
0: can do them at home, you can do home. them quiet. Mm. Yeah. So many amazing features. Well Belinda, thank you for sharing your story. It was so wonderful to meet you. Love you You're most book.
1: welcome. I love if we can empower people, I love what you're doing, right, Selena. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me on you're welcome
0: and I I'm so glad to hear about that fearless fearless organization that's a I'll put that on the website and uh the podcast links because it's it's another tool for people to see that you're not alone that there's lots and lots of people like us all on different levels and and this is something you mentioned you started that breathwork last October and that's how many 17 years so this is not something we just stop is it it becomes a new thing that we integrate into our life to
1: maintain our brain health that is exactly right yes yep. thank
0: you belinda for being on the thriving minds podcast thank
1: you, thank you so much Selena.